Hello and welcome to Dial F for Flanger, the uh, chat show, I think it is. It's a chat show, yeah. Um, and today I'm talking with my uh, a podcaster that I greatly admire, um, a personal friend. I'm talking to Mike Gillis. Um, and today's topic, well, yeah, how do we ease into this generally? We, we both have experiences with cancer, um, so we thought we would talk about that together as, yeah. uh, as two humans who are, are currently enduring. So, Mike, how are you? I don't have cancer right now. That's that's a plus side. I mean, if I want to try to find the positive parts of living in the world at this span of time, um, there's a lot of things that I haven't I haven't been killed by the cops and I haven't died in a global plague. So, <laughs> yay! Wow, you're doing really well, actually. So, yeah, yeah. this is me being positive. <laughs> <laughs> so. How did you discover you had cancer, and what type of cancer did you end up having? Um, well, I'll ask the second one first. I had uh, semanoma, which is a testicular cancer. I know that they kind of group them as semanoma, non-semanoma. But um, I guess to go back a little bit further, um, I think around 2017 or so, I had some testicular pain that had been bothering me. You know, I, it had been there for a while, and you know, not to get too gross about it, but your testicles are kind of a, a group of things that move around inside of a larger thing, and there's stuff in there. And I am you sit in a certain <laughs> yeah, you sit in a certain way on the bus or something, and it it would cause me pain every so often. I couldn't do it on purpose, but there were just ways I sat, so there was something there that was causing me pain or pinching or pushing and stuff. And when it's something to do with your testicles, there's something kind of embarrassing about it, that you're going to go to a doctor's office, you're going to have to pull your pants down in front of them, and then they're going to clinically look at your junk and go, hmm, okay, hmm, okay. And you feel, I mean, you're literally exposed, but you feel sort of emotionally exposed to go along with it. Yeah. And I went through that process, and I have since learned that even after finding out that I had cancer and going through treatment and all of this, that there is nothing more embarrassing or dehumanizing than the moment where they do an ultrasound on your testicles. That is, that is the worst medical experience I've had. And I've gone through it twice now, once for the cyst and once for my cancer that you go into this room and it's darkened. Um, they have you pull your pants down, you know, you're, I'm going to get a little bit graphic here, but uh, you they have you push your penis up and they put it under a towel so your balls are just sort of exposed. And they put that really cold, clear gel on it in this darkened room. And then this person uh, just moves this wand around on it and it's making all these weird sonar sounds. And I guess your idea of what an ultrasound is based on movies is almost always a pregnant woman. And oh, my God, see right there. You can see you can see his nose. And, and it's this like happy movement. Uh, this is not a happy moment. This was this woman looking at a screen, not telling me what's happening, not giving me any kind of update, not talking to me. So I'm just sitting there. I'm already scared. Um, I've got my junk out on this table and sitting there silently while this person looks at a bunch of charts while a machine makes weird whoa, whoa, whoa sounds. And I don't know what's happening. Um the first time I went through this, they found that I had a benign cyst. Um, it was easily dealt with. I got surgery uh, within a couple days. I was off of work for a week. I spent a week at home, 
catching up on reading, watching some television and sitting on a bag of ice. Then I had some light duty at work for a couple of weeks. So I wore a jock strap to hold things in place while I healed. That was pretty simple. And so the second time that I found something in July of 2019, I hope this was that. I hope this was another, I go to the doctor's office, I get the humiliating ultrasound, I get surgery at Good Samaritan Hospital, sit on ice for a while, I'm back at work in a week. That's that's really what I wanted. But it wasn't that. The, the time that I found it, I was um, driving delivery for a pharmacy and there was something wrong. Um, and when you sit in a car, your stuff gets bunched up. So it didn't feel like my cyst. It didn't feel like a thing that it would occasionally, if moved in the right position, give me a little pinch. It didn't have pain at all. Um, but it was large and it was oddly shaped. It's kind of like about the size and shape of a fun sized candy bar that you give out on Halloween oh. where it's a, you know, that shape is not supposed to be in there. That yeah. things in there are round. Yeah. That's, that's not a fun size, too. It's way too small. It's, no, there is no good fun size. It's it's all bad. And um, the fact that I'd gone through this previously with a cyst, made, it probably brought my emotions down to a level that was manageable that I could finish my work day. The fact that this was doable. The idea of going to the hospital, going to... Um, I think I went to a, a clinic, uh, cause my, my doctor's office, I think it must've been on a Saturday and it was like late afternoon. And I'm like, I just got to figure this out. Just go check it out. But because I'd gone through the cyst, the, the sort of embarrassment and the, Oh, well, maybe it's nothing, whatever that had been sort of wiped out. And I was in the mindset of, okay, this is probably just a benign cyst. I'm just going to get it dealt with on whatever time frame I do. But I went to the 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 clinic and they didn't really give me an answer. They just told me I should go to the emergency room, which that's, that's not great. Then I go to the emergency room and then I go through the ultrasound again, the same exact sort of, you know, if I've learned anything, it's, it's that I don't respond well to certain kinds of formality when it comes to medical stuff. Like, when somebody comes into a room and they don't look you in the eye and they don't talk to you and they're very kind of respectfully silent, yeah, that always makes me uncomfortable and it makes me feel like I'm dying. Yeah. Um, and it just scares the shit out of me. Yeah. Um, I have found that even flippancy is way more comfortable. It feels more like a normal thing is happening. If somebody tells a joke about it, like when I had my first surgery, uh, my surgeon, who has now operated on my testicles twice, uh, Dr. Charles Chang of uh, Good Samaritan Hospital, um, I was in pre-op, and I'm sitting in a in a hospital bed. I'm in a gown. They have those weird socks on you that have the weird rubber bits on the bottom so yep. that you don't slip on the hospital floor. You know the ones? Yep. And they have these things on my legs that, squeeze them alternatingly like it's a milking machine on a cow like squeeze my left leg squeeze my right leg i think it's there for circulation yeah but it's actually really good at calming you down because this is my first surgery and i was terrified and um dr chang came in and i think you could see that i was nervous and i just kind of blurred out uh i've never done this before and he said ha neither have i <laughs> and that made me feel so much better like immediately 
Um, because it was, you know, those moments where somebody doesn't treat you like you're, you're dead and they don't want to look you in the eye because they don't know how to talk to you. Yeah. That just makes it worse. So anyway, um, I got a little bit of that the first time that I was at the emergency room that clearly the doctors were out of the room for a really long time and they were clearly talking to each other and they're clearly going over stuff. And that, that's never a good sign. Um, and they came back and, oh, that was probably the worst feeling I've probably ever had aside from like a beloved pet dying. You hear the C word and, you know, that, and I think a lot of it too is that we, we take in a lot of media, both you and I. So when we watch a TV show or a movie that where cancer is a plot element, the only kind of cancer that ever appears on television or in movies is like the really bad kind, the yeah. kind that usually means that you're going to see a slow deterioration of this person. They're going to be really skinny and they're going to lose all their hair and they're probably going to have a really touching death scene. So that's where my brain went. And I cried for a bit. I was rocking back and forth and the doctor basically just, hit me with, you know, you need to go to this person right away. We're making this appointment for you to go talk to the surgeon. It was my doctor, Charles Chang, who I hadn't seen in a couple of years. Um, he, and, you know, you know, he just hit me with, you need to deal with this. This is time sensitive. You need, you know, whether this is or isn't turned out to be cancer, because I have a bunch of screenings to do. I've got a lot of imaging to do. I've got a lot of blood work to do we need to just assume this is cancer right now. Don't not like, Oh, it's probably nothing. You know, it might not be yeah. nothing. No, you just have to have to assume that it's cancer and best case scenario, you just get good news. And, um, I kind of went from there. It moved really fast after that, but I have never been scared. Like I was scared at that moment where I think once you get into your thirties, you start thinking about mortality, but that was the first time I ever really felt it like felt like, Oh my God, am I dying? Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter when you hear that word, all of, I, I would always kind of talk about the two halves of my brain. There was the, the emotional side of my brain. And I kind of called the other side, my Spock brain that when things would start to get emotionally fraught and I would start to really feel it, I would just go, okay, stop, Mike. You know that this is, if you're going to get cancer, this is the one you want to get. They told you this over and over again, that this is very treatable. It responds really well to radiation and treatment. There's a very high survivability rate of this. But no matter how many times you tell yourself, that kind of reasoning can't deal with the avalanche of emotions. It doesn't fully deal with it. And sometimes you just got to write it out. I think I worked one more day doing deliveries before my surgery. And there were just times I just had to pull over the car and just cry. I was just bawling. And, you know, it was, it was hard. I had to make a phone call to my mom because I know that whatever this was, I still live in the fucking, you know, privatized healthcare system in the United States. And I was going to need help. Um, 
Then I had to make a call to my girlfriend, Piper, and that wasn't going to be fun because um, in the last 10 years, both of her parents have died of cancer, and I really didn't want to say that word to her. Yeah. And I don't know. It was, oh, it, I don't know. I'm sort of feeling it again right now, but it was definitely, it was a, it felt like what I imagine the emotional equivalent of getting hit by a truck would feel like. Yeah. I mean, I I had my own experience, and, and mine is different, because, uh, you know, cancer comes in lots of different varieties, uh, as a, quite a treat for human beings. Um, but, I mean, I, I want to share mine just because I think it's helpful that people, you know, guys like us know what to look out for, So just if you hear someone else's experiences. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just noticed that I was uh, needing to get up in the... I would say uh, wee small hours, but it was the small wee hours because I was doing, you know, smaller trips to the bathroom more often. Uh, you yeah. Know, my flow was, you know, terrible. And I mentioned it to my wife and, you know, God bless my wife because she is the one who always says, you should do something about that, not you should just mention it in passing and then say, no, I don't want to be the centre of attention. And, you know, uh, so I did something called a PSA test. I went to a doctor and... Uh, uh, they tested my urine and they tested my blood and, uh, you know, they said, yeah, you, you might have something. We want you to see a urologist who's a, mm-hmm. a specialist in down that area. And, yeah, I had a few more tests and things. And he said, yeah, um, you've got prostate cancer. And I oh, jeez. Yeah, and I was like, oh, okay. I, you know, I've heard of this. I don't really know what it is. So, you know, I had a little lesson on where the prostate is, which is sort of... Um, inside behind your junk uh towards the back passage <laughs> so um yeah and i went through the experience with you with having you know fairly um yeah exposing tests and things and feeling very vulnerable and you know you know it's you feel like you're you go into a school area because everything's sort of you know vinyl floor and you know white painted walls and everything and it's all very business-like but they say you know put on this gown take off all your clothes and you feel a bit cold and a bit vulnerable and you you know gowns open at the back and you know, uh, stand on this and pee into this thing that weighs your pee and and measures how fast you're doing it and yeah, and, and everyone's so clinical about everything, and it's like it's this huge emotional roller coaster for you and for them. It's Tuesday, yeah, and that experience alone just feels so weird. Yeah, yeah, and you you spend your life, you know, protecting your dignity and your, you know, particularly your junk. You you cover it up. You don't, you know. I come from a generation where we'd never sent pictures of our junk to anyone because uh, that was just stupid and weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I had a similar, you know, feeling of, you know, you you feel so vulnerable, you feel so exposed, and you hope that people are aware of that in you, you know, and even if it is their normal job, that they are, you know, appreciative that, you know, this is a really big deal for you, even if it's not for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I had a scan, I finally got into one of those, you know, great big tubes and lay on a thing, and... um. And that took a long time, and I was like amazed at the noises that it made. And you know, yeah, in your line, those, those machines are just so weird because I, I've always found that just the hospital experience, but especially any kind of medical imaging, it feels like you've stepped into a Stanley Kubrick movie. Yeah, you walk into this big empty room, and everything is white and featureless and smooth, and there's just this strange. <laughs> 
like plain looking machine in the middle of it. Yeah. And maybe there's a thing on the ceiling that's supposed to make you feel calm. And it's like a backlit image of like a forest Glen with like a lake or something. Yeah. And there's something about it that is just, I don't know. It feels a little bit like the room at the end of 2001 where that guy's (laughs) eating soup. Yeah. And I don't know. There's just, I know maybe that makes other people feel calm, but it just feels so strange. And you're already, like you mentioned, in the robe where your backside is open on the, and you're wearing these weird socks and clothes that aren't yours. Yeah. And they put you in the machine, and, like, the the curve of the machine is, like, two inches above your nose. So, yes, you know, you've got that feeling of, I can't sit up. Like, I'm used to being able to sit up. I can't move. They want me to stay still. This thing's really loud, so they've stuck earphones in me, and they've asked me which radio station I want to listen to, and you know, Oof. I don't, I, you know, I don't listen to the radio because it's garbage. <laughs> it's like so, oh, I better go with you know um, the government radio station that plays alternate music because that's uh, most palatable, and I'm least likely to hear something politically that upsets me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so and stay in there, and this machine will sort of scan you and. You have to stay still, but -hmm. your body is like, I want to twitch a bit, and I'm starting to feel really like I've got no control over how long this lasts. I'm feeling this weird warmth around my groin as this thing scans me. Oh, did they give you the injection of the the contrast? Yeah, yeah, they gave me that. That stuff feels so weird. It feels like you have to pee, but it also feels like you've wet yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you taste metal, but you don't taste metal on your tongue. It's like you taste it on the inside of your skull in your mouth. Oh, yep. Thank you for bringing all that back. (laughs) I know. It's so weird. Um, And and you've also got no one in the room with you because of, you know, the scanning, you know, effects of the scanning imagery and, you know, radiation. They don't want to have any metal in there. So you feel like you've got a music studio nearby. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm trying to, is this the, was this the radiation machine you're talking about, or are you talking about like a a CT scan? It's a CT scan for me, so. Okay, so if you, if people don't know what that is, at least what it is for, in the United States, is that you lay on this slab, and you have, uh, for me at least, you have your arms above your head, and sometimes they put a triangle-shaped wedge there. Yep. To help you hold your arms in place so that they don't get tired, but the first time I went through it, they didn't. And I swear, your arms are not meant to be held in that position forever. Your body naturally moves. So it's this unnatural, you know, position you're in and you start cramping after a while, but you can't move because if you move, they have to start all over again. Yeah. And then this slab moves in and out of this giant white donut. So you're kind of making that suggestive finger through the hoop <laughs> sex symbol, except that you're the you're the finger going through the hoop, and you just move back and forth through this as it makes it a yeah. and there's something whirling inside of the donut that you can sort of see, but you don't know what it does. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So yeah, and I was told, okay, you've got. You've got um, prostate cancer. Um, mm. Here's a you know a plastic body part that will explain where that is. It basically says it's a swelling here. It affects your ability to pee because things are getting cramped and it's squeezing your tubes a bit. Um, yeah, and I was told you know this is one of the better types of cancer to get. 
because uh, it's yeah. got a good um, survivability rate. Uh, yeah, but I mean, coming to the end of my story, basically, um, me and cancer were going to live with each other. So you know, things I'm I have medicine to help me, you know, go to the toilet more regularly, and um, I I will probably die of natural causes before the cancer gets me because it's um, you know. But they want to check me every every year, so um, and my health insurance will pay for most of the cost of a CT scan once a year, so I will probably have a CT scan every year. Uh, and sometimes I'll have surgery for a biopsy, uh, which, yeah, so I've had that twice now, and I try well, to... the biopsy, is that the thing where they put that needle thing in you, and it's just, they numb you up, and it makes that little click sound, like they're checking a ticket or something? Well, I had general anaesthetic both times, so I don't know, so... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I had, but I had they a put lesser me, one. They put me completely under, and then, you know, uh, everything, it, yeah, it's really, everything's really sore for about a week after, <laughs> down, mm, down there. Yeah. I I think mine was probably less invasive than yours, because I was awake when it happened. Yeah. Um, I still had the contrast in it, but I had to drink all of this. Um, it tasted like... You know, the sort of, and looked a lot like the paste that you would make like a paper mache head with in like middle school um, art class. Oh, yuck. And they say it's berry flavored, but I think it's probably more accurate to say it's berry scented. <laughs> um, it tastes like nothing, but you can usually chug it down pretty fast. And it comes in this big tube about the size of like a large cola at a, at a, a restaurant or something. But it's it's thicker, but it's not so thick that it's like milkshake thick. Mm. Did you get any of that stuff too? No, I didn't need any of that. So yeah, probably because it's I don't know why, but yeah, I didn't need any of that. I I went into these things with very little prep. Um, yeah, and it was day surgery, so I was only in there for a day. But uh, afterwards, it's like um, your ability to pee becomes like a, a qu Olympic qualifier because basically <laughs> you know after you've had the surgery they wake you up a few hours later and they sit you in a room and basically you can leave as soon as you've peed a certain amount <laughs> which, which which sounds really easy but oh, you know i was there for hours the first time I was there for like oh, man. five hours and I... kept going to the toilet and you know collecting what i did and then coming back and saying that no, still not enough yeah oh man it's <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. Are you just constantly drinking so that you can try to hit hit your number? Yeah, yeah. Oh, geez. Um, I hadn't eaten anything after for my surgery when I went in. I had you know Doctor Chang again, and the continuity of that made it easier because I'd already gone under before for surgery, and I think that that actually helped me quite a bit because there were some things that would have been terrifying to me and had been terrifying to me the first time Yeah. that I didn't want to have to deal with plus cancer fear. Yeah. And that at least was a little bit easier. Um, it's like the roller coaster. It's the, it's easier the second time. You exactly. Know, you know, some of the swerves that are coming up. <laughs> yeah. And you know, they, they roll you into the room and you sort of count backwards and then suddenly you're awake again in the post-op room, probably hours later. And, um, I remember, I mean, I, I think our, our, our mutual friend, Rob Kelly talked about this sort of fear of, of surgery and stuff. It's not like they're, you know, taking like the knives and rubbing them against each other. Like they're getting ready to carve a turkey right before you go under or anything. But, 
Um, there's no version of that that isn't at least a little bit scary because I don't know, maybe, maybe in my thirties, the, the fear of my own mortality started to slowly seep into everything. The sense that just mathematically I was closer to dying than I had been in my twenties. And, um, there's something about going under that feels like you're dying or what I imagine dying probably feels like. Yeah. Cause it's not like there's dreams or anything. You're, you're out in a way that you're not having a dream because they can't have you jiggling around a bit. If they're certainly sawing into your testicles and <laughs> I don't want to be jiggling around if they saw into my testicles. No. Um, but I, I have one testicle now and I remember one thing we did on, on my podcast was, um, we had a uh, Ask Me Anything episode, you know, Ask Us Anything. And I kind of wanted people to ask me about my cancer. I wanted to see if people would ask the questions that I would have wanted to know. But nobody does. Nobody – people feel really uncomfortable with that, and I think doubly so when it's your testicles. Because there's already a sense of I had cancer, but I don't want to tell you what kind because it feels kind of like I'm mentioning a really not appropriate topic if I talk yeah. about a thing that happened to me. But, you know, questions like, you know, I wanted to know if anyone would ask that. Uh, the big question being, if you have two testicles and they hang in the way that they hang and the doctors remove one of them, does the remaining testicle hang in the middle or does it stay to its side? That is the thing I wanted to know before. Yeah. Um, and nobody has asked me that. And I will answer that question now because somebody is wondering that now, right now. And it stays to its side. Ah, okay. So I, I, my, my right testicle is gone. It's a little, little lopsided, my scrotum, but it, it is there and it stays to its side because it's not just floating around loose, like, you know, marbles in a bag. Yeah. You know, there's, there's stuff it's attached to. So it's Nick Fury, not Cyclops. Yes. It's <laughs> Nick Fury, not Cyclops. And, um, yeah, I just, but the weird thing is if people are willing to sort of ask those kinds of questions, it, in a weird way, I mean, I'm past the point where, aside from occasional fear of it, because, like you mentioned, the fact that this is just something you live with, I'm living with it, too. That um, I will have to be doing these sorts of things at least every six months for the foreseeable future of my life. That um, I've been cancer free the last few times they checked, so I don't have to do the CT scan every time. I just have to do it once a year, but I still have the blood tests and the doctor's, um, appointment. Like my next doctor's appointment is on this Wednesday, the 21st, and it'll be the first time I got in there in six months. And it'll be interesting because, you know, I don't have to go through the machine or anything like that. I just do blood tests. And, you know, I know statistically every time I go this, the odds of it coming back are pretty slight. But, you know, there's always that. It's like the reverse lottery where it's you have the the bad thing coming back. You know, it's not the good thing. And mm. I know that it's slight, but I've already gotten once and suddenly single digit number percentages feel a lot bigger than they did before I got it because, you know this stuff can come back yeah. and I don't know. And, but that's the thing too, is that you learn a lot about cancer by having cancer. Like if it comes back, it won't be my other testicle. It'll probably be a lymph node and something else. And yeah. I'm just glad that there's been a lot of advances in this because I mean, I spent a lot of time looking up other people who've had 
testicular cancer. Um, Lance Armstrong and uh, Tom Green or two that I know of. And I just, you know, I really, really, really appreciate that Tom Green, when he got testicular cancer in, I think it was like 99 or 2000, I think he did like a TV special about all of it and had a song about how you should check your balls. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, it normalizes it. It normalizes a thing that you would otherwise feel ashamed of. You might not want to talk to a doctor about it. You might not know how to, to deal with it emotionally or tell your relatives about it. And it's not fun. It really is really the opposite of fun. Um, and then on top of it, there's this little bit where it's like your cancer is embarrassing. Mm. You know, it's sort of like it's, it's like if you have a little patch of skin cancer and think that's probably the best case scenario. You're like, oh, yeah, they cut it off of me. Um, I'm like, yeah, they, you know, one of my testicles tried to kill me, so I paid a guy to kill it for me. That's essentially <laughs> what happened. Yeah. And, you know, I look at the sort of really painful treatment that people like Tom Green or Lance Armstrong, his must have been. I don't know how he did not notice it that long because when his was like stage four testicular cancer, he had it in his brain. Yeah. So that's really far along. I mean, I had stage two, which was, it was in the testicle, but it also had, it was barely stage two. It had spread to a second, like a lymph node. And that's what the, the surgery that I went through got rid of the testicle, but, and pulled a lot of the extra, I guess, testicle accoutrement from that side out. Mm. But the, the radiation I went through was for that lymph node and they didn't find it at first. I went through what felt like a month and a half of just constant imaging, whether it's CT scans, um, I did, um, a MRI. Did you do any of those? No. The MRI is the, it is a weird experience because it's making sure that it went into your brain because it wouldn't, I guess the blood brain barrier would have prevented the other imaging methods of, of finding that. So they have to do a specific brain span to find out if any of the cancer was in my brain. And it feels like a machine that they would put you in to wear you down so that the CIA could ask you questions (laughs) that you're disoriented, your sense of time is wrecked and that you'd probably tell them anything they wanted to hear because I went into this machine. um, Thankfully my legs were sticking out. In fact, the fact that my legs are sticking out and I'm in that gown and I could feel the air conditioner on my feet helped me not feel like I was trapped inside this tiny tunnel and not allowed to move or make noise for an indeterminate amount of time. They had me go through twice. The first time I came out of it and I asked them how long I'd been in there and they told me 20 minutes. And if they had told me three hours or if they had told me five minutes, I would have believed either. Yeah. It is, it is disorienting. It is, it is strange and it, it's like a series of just weird noises and I can't even imitate them, but it's, it wasn't even the, I think it was still less unpleasurable than that first, uh, CT scan where my arms were cramping up badly. That was probably worse, but I'm really glad that they put a cloth over my eyes. Otherwise I would have had the, the ceiling of this tunnel I was in probably about three inches away from my eyes. 
And that would have been crazy. It would have been like the buried alive scene in Kill Bill. You know, it would have mm. been <laughs> it. You know, that cloth over my eyes did more to probably keep me from panicking than anything. Because if you feel like you're blindfolded, you I mean, intellectually, I know I'm in this tiny little confined machine with all these strange sounds. But if I see the ceiling and I can, oh, it would have it would have been bad. Yeah, yeah. My urologist. I mean, one of the first things he did to me really early in the process was stick his hand up my butt. Um, oh, which well, not his whole hand, like in <laughs> Fletch. Uh, yeah, but up to the elbow. Yeah, a couple of fingers up there just to to feel. And that was before they did any of the proper scans. And and but you know that was you know the first time I met the guy. So yeah, it was a bit of a rough first date, but. <laughs> but yeah that I mean that's part of the thing and that's one of the things you fear when you don't know anything about this stuff you go, oh I don't want a stranger doing weird you know things that might be associated with sex to me in a non-sexual way um, but yeah you, there really is it. you have to overcome a lot of um, your fears and your you know and the stuff you shame. haven't really yeah your shame like yeah and I actually felt sorry for him and it's like, imagine doing that to people you know, the first time you meet them and having to do that as part of your job, you go, oh, golly, I've got to do that. And they had to learn it at school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you have to do it in a way that doesn't panic them and yeah. doesn't, because they're already, this is happening because something is scaring them right now. Yeah. And this is, you could be a part of making it worse, but you also have a job to do. Yeah. And, and they go, you know, try and relax, try and relax, you know, relax. <laughs> so obviously, <laughs> stop it's not flexing. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, no, no. I mean, I thankfully I didn't have to go through that. But when I got my radiation treatment, I, I don't know. Maybe you know. I don't know if you've seen the image of a testicular radiation shield before, but it looks like a torture device. Right. And you have to sort of. It looks like it's attached to some sort of a winch thing, and it lifts up attached to like a triangular shaped wedge that goes between your thighs. And there's this weird lead slash ceramic sphere at the top of it that unscrews and it unscrews with a, a handle on the top that looks a lot like a clamp. And that's the last kind of screw type thing you want to see moving towards your junk with a, some kind of a machine. It's like, <laughs> Oh, you're going to go into this. I've seen that in um, Saw, I think, or a Nine Inch Nails video. Yes, it, it looks very much like that. And But the thing was, I had 21 of these treatments to go through. I don't think I wore the shield for the last few. That was a lighter, I guess, kind of bringing you down kind of treatment at the end. I think my last 10 or so treatments was a lesser, more targeted radiation. But the first few, they gave me the shield. And um the thing with lead is it's also really heavy so when they put the top of that clamp on you can't have any of the skin of your testicles or anything in between it and the top part because it pinches and lead is heavy so when it pinches it pinches pretty hard so when the same nurse would come in every day and put this thing on me and it was like watching him diffuse a bomb to make sure all of me was in that thing at all angles and um, if he got it wrong, he would know. It was like playing <laughs> playing Operation. You knew if he touched the sides. And it was 
it at first it was one of the most humiliating experiences where it's like everything it, you know you're just like oh man this person is handling my junk and putting it into this weird torture device every day and it's tuesday to him but to me this is one of the more momentous occasions of my life this is like this is kind of scary i'm already going to get zapped with you know stuff that would give peter parker powers but you know with me hopefully it'll just make my you know my cancer not kill me it'll kill the cancer and after a while you get remarkably desensitized to that whole experience of walking into a room, pulling your pants down and having this person put your testicles inside of a little clamp machine Mm. that it, you know, after 20 something treatments, it doesn't feel like a big deal anymore. Yeah. And I don't know. It's like after the initial scary surgery stuff, I don't know if, did you go through the same experience of cancer goes from being this terrifying, you know, warlike scenario where everything is happening and everything that happens is scary to suddenly a whole lot of waiting and it just becomes boring. Yeah. Yeah. I find it particularly frustrating because when I'm, I've got nothing to do, I will always make sure I've got something to read and I was continually being put into situations where I couldn't have anything with me. (laughs) Mm. And that, that was very frustrating. It was like, you know, this is my way of coping with this is to distract myself by doing something else. And I have nothing to distract me except for my thoughts. And, uh, Oh, that's the scariest place to be. Yeah. You do not want to be alone with your thoughts when you have cancer. I know. So with your, with, I mean, we come from a generation where, you know, we've seen a lot of people that, you know, were, our actors and our movie directors and our musicians are starting to die. Uh, fair to mm-hmm. say, you know, we've, you know, we've gone some people who were just part of our lives, and then suddenly they've gone, like uh, Tom Petty, David Bowie, you know, etc. Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy, yeah. Um, so, how did this affect your sense of mortality, and how, you know, what sort of changes did that bring? One of the things I really felt was this is a way to get a lot of sympathy from my loved ones. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, that's a good thing, because I like to feel a bit special. And my son um, made a caramel cake and said, here, Dad, I made you a cancer cake. And it was like the best thing. <laughs> <laughs> and every now and again, I was like, can you make me another cancer cake? You know, and uh... it is. I mean, there's, there are little moments where it's kind of nice where people drive out and get you things because yeah. you're not going to get into a car. I didn't drive a car for probably two or three months after my surgery. Um, you're just kind of sitting at home. I read a lot during that time. I think I read the entirety of all of Batman, uh, Nightfall during that time, plus a crap ton of other stuff. Um, I had so much of my to read pile that I just knocked a huge chunk out of it. Yeah. But, but yeah, I think, um, the sympathy can be nice, but it also, I have a tendency, maybe it's just my imposter syndrome, but, I have a tendency to find attention embarrassing. Yeah. That there's something about it that is genuinely discomfortable, like I am being a drama queen or something, or I'm whining about it. But that's the thing, too, is that when you're already told a thousand different times that if you're going to get cancer, this is the kind you want to get, and people are treating you like you have the scarier kind of cancer where you're probably going to die in three months, um you kind of feel like you're a phony. You Mm -hmm. kind of feel like 
do I really have cancer? Do I have the right to call myself a cancer survivor? You know, am I, am I stealing valor, so to speak? Am I, yeah. am I somebody who is acting like I'm a war hero when I just did a couple weeks in like the national guard, you yeah. know, in yeah. Germany? I mean, yeah, that's I, what it kind of feels like. Um, yeah, I tackled it by, you know, sort of trying to make jokes about it. So, you know, like, playing a board game and losing and then I'd say I've got cancer you know to the family so you know I wanted them to get over that you know to so if I, I thought if I joke about it then they'll feel more comfortable about the reality of it you know and yeah I, I think that helped you know and a couple of times my wife said alright that one's valid and then she said no nah, you can't use that anymore you, you, you're done you've played that card too often you know so Oh, well, yeah. you need people in your life that are willing to say that to you. Yeah. You really do. <laughs> it keeps you grounded. But I, I do find a certain amount of, of flippancy makes me feel better. Yeah. Um, a good friend of mine recently went through brain surgery. And like me, he went through, well, if you're going to get brain surgery, this is the one you want to get. Mm. And he's a lot like me in that sense. And I've kind of talked to him a lot about my experience because it, kind of feels like it's similar to mine in that sort of way where there's this sudden sense this wash over you this cold fear of mortality that you didn't have before how do you just like there's just knowledge i mean i'm going to die someday there's no there's no way around that mm -hmm. i'm not gonna i'm not i'm not going to wake up again on the table and now i'm a highlander style immortal mm -hmm. it's just not in the cards um but I kind of always assume that whenever I die, it's really far away. And nobody, no matter how old you get, no matter how bad my knees have gotten, I never think of myself as old. And I wonder how long that's going to last. Um, but it felt like my death was still really far away. I was like 40 years old. That doesn't, I mean, when I was 16, that felt like really old and ready to die. But it doesn't yeah. feel to me now, you know. I I meet somebody who's 25 and I think of them subconsciously as a kid. Yeah, yeah, you do that. So I don't yeah. I don't know. It just it. I'm not. I'm certainly not ready to die. But it it really hit me on how scared I was to die in that in that moment. Yeah. But oh, did anyone do anything I, really unhelpful during it, or you know, say, you know, did anyone ever say the wrong thing or upset you? Just once, um, and I don't think they did it on purpose. It was a nurse. I think it wasn't anything they said specifically, but I remember I was waiting to hear back. They were trying to get a hold of someone so that I could get the the surgery or the um, the appointment with the with the urologist ready for the next week and. Somebody walked in, they talked to me in a way that sort of implied that I was already kind of dead. Mm. Not, it wasn't a thing they said. It was just kind of a behavior of, I don't want to look you in the eye because yeah. I can't emotionally handle what's happening to you. Yeah, I and it's a very human. Distance. Yeah. Kind of like, I'm just going to walk in here, set something down, not look at you when I say something briefly and get out of here as quickly as I can. Mm. And that to me was probably harder than anything. Um, I didn't kind of go public with my cancer for a while. I was definitely post-surgery when I posted anything on social media about it. But I, 
I wanted that part of it, the scary surgery part of it, to be done. I wanted to be convalescing at home mm. when I went public with it, because then I wouldn't have the immediate fear of what if I die in surgery? What if everything goes horribly wrong? What a, you know, every every catastrophizing you know mm. rabbit hole into despair that I could possibly go down. That that's out of the way. That I opened the box and the cat was alive. Yeah, and. You know, I, but I really think just that one moment pre-surgery where that nurse kind of walked in, asked me a couple questions without looking me in the eye, that was probably more emotionally devastating to me than anything. Yeah. Because it made me feel like I had cancer. Yeah. Did you have any moments like that? I, I, I told, I, I think I've been drifting away from Christianity for a while and I told a couple of people who are Christians about it and... Oh, I, I, no. I said, you know, hey, could you, you know, I've got this situation I'm dealing with. Could you, would you mind praying for me? And I think I was just really upset that there was no follow up from those people. Like it was just mm. like, you know, they probably prayed for me because you know, I asked them to, but there was no one who, you know, I feel like they weren't friends because they didn't come and go, how are you going? You know, how how's it going? There wasn't that human contact. And I think that's what I really wanted. Um, you know, mm -hmm. like my mum is going to pray for me no matter what. Um, you know, I've, there's a few people I know who will pray for me no matter what, and that's you know that's nice and good on them. Um, but I think I want someone to reach out when I when I entrust them with something that not everyone else knew. If you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You you kind of want you you you're specifically choosing someone that you're giving sensitive information to. Yeah, and you want them to treat it like it's an important thing. Yeah. And not just add it to their prayer list. <laughs> yeah. That it's up there with, oh, I hope the mailman is okay because he had a hangnail or something. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I feel it has affected my... I mean, I, I joke about it on the Gary Show and things, death prep, you know? It's like... Yeah. You know, but I... I you know, we live in a consumer society. I own lots of stuff and, you know... It, Someday I will be gone and all my stuff won't be, you know, unless there's some sort of fire beforehand. Uh, at least we die together in a fire. <laughs> <laughs> you take it with you. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like you can watch. I don't know. There's something very Egyptian about that. But yeah. I think this is something that all nerds kind of have to deal with is I think that on some level, even if it's a much healthier degree, we have we have the hoarding gene, whether or not it's active or not. And there is a real possibility that the people we have as our heirs, and it'll be my niece someday, if she doesn't give a shit about comics, she might just take all this stuff to a used bookstore and sell it or give it to a library or something. She might not give a shit about it. And I just kind of have to live with the fact that I can't make somebody care about the things I care about. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I can't. I mean, because, I mean, again, put myself in those shoes. What if I had some aunt who died and she had this creepy collection of porcelain clowns? Yeah. <laughs> um, I I can respect her and her wishes, but I'm never going to like having those clowns around. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think for me, I, it's sort of like, well, I've got, you know, I, I'm not insane i don't have as many comics as many other people but i have you know 21 boxes of comics short boxes of comics i have a room full of trade paperbacks i have action figures and pops and things like that you know so 
I've tried just not to let my accumulation sprawl beyond that room, and I'm sort of, you know, trying to have a, you know, one-in-one-out sort of attitude to it all. So, you know, yeah. if I can't fit things on the shelf, it might be time to do another cull. Um, yeah, and I, I've sort of done that now with comics where I'm trying to buy comics that I that can be, you know, disposed of profitably in some way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, but also I, you you actually really love the stuff that you do buy. Yeah, and I think that's something that I get is that I've got a space for the comics that I have. And when it butts up against that, I need to have conversations and ask myself hard questions about how much I really like certain things and whether I'm ever going to reread them. Um, I've, I've bought things before in the past where I owned it because I felt like I should own it. That if I'm yeah. a comic fan, I should like this thing and I should care about this thing. And there was an omnibus book that I bought twice at full price. <laughs> sold it to a used bookstore, then bought it again because it felt like it's something I should... It's like, why is this... What is this behavior? Because this isn't healthy. (laughs) I should actually like the things that I put time into. It's not about should, it just does. And, you know, I think when a lot of the... um, I forget what her name is, the the lady that does this spark joy in you. Oh, Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo, I think I sort of instinctively held up my nose at that, like, oh, that sounds like a point. But I think there's something really to that. It's like, am I having something to have something? Do I want a complete collection of a thing that doesn't make me happy? Yeah. Or am I going to give this space over to something that actually makes me happy? If this is a bunch of crap that, you know, after I'm dead, relatives are going to have to move around. Yeah. Am I torturing them for no reason, or am I torturing them because and making them carry heavy boxes because I loved those heavy boxes? Yeah, no one's going to look and go, wow, this person has a really good comprehensive set of the DC continuity across, you know, 85 to 2020, you know? <laughs> yeah, I just, I know, and that's the thing you just kind of have to get over, which is that the stuff that you love is absolute nothing to somebody else. And that's okay. I, yeah. I don't need them to love it as much as I love it, but I should at least love it. Yeah. I, and for me, that's manifested in, I don't, I've tried to keep my read pile really under control. So I have, you know, I, my li- read pile is literally down to four single comic books at the moment, like collections. Oh, jeez. Yeah. How did you do that? Well, yeah, I just went at it really hard and tried to stop accumulating. Now, my read pile oh. doesn't account for anything digital, because so, that isn't a pile, that's uh, imaginary, until I look at it. Um, yeah, I but... can't imagine my pile being only four unless I just had a fire. <laughs> but, I, I mean, I do have, you know, I do have a things a pile of things that I want to read that I've already read. So I have a read-again pile as well, but that's just electronically that I track that rather than having a literal pile so yeah it, it it's interesting because you don't you know you are faced with your mortality and what is the baggage you're going to leave behind for people who you know care about you or have to deal with what you cared about yeah mm. yeah it's i think there is stuff that i have that people in my life would want yeah like i would there's definitely someone who'd be happy to have my car um are probably my computer and I have friends, Casey and and Piper and Sam and a bunch of other people in my life who would probably be happy to take some of my comics, not all of them. I don't think anyone would want that. (laughs) Um, it's just, I just, it, it feels like the 
inheritance equivalent of going, hey, I'm just going to put these these cement shoes on you. Now you're going <laughs> to... You walk around just, with them. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like awful. You know, it's just a certain point where it feels like it's a metaphor for some kind of horrible burden whenever I see someone at a comic convention and they have like a four-wheeled cart with this big slab and they've got long boxes all over it and I'm like, who are you <laughs> just you've you've crossed a point that i ever would have gotten to i would have hit a point going i'm not carrying this around a convention center all weekend but i just go man i i hope you have space in your house to live in because i don't know i think you, you do kind of ask questions like that and i think i'm better at asking myself those questions after cancer yeah about whether i actually really like something or not is this you know am i just buying this out of habit you know a sort of a collector's mentality which can get kind of toxic this idea of this you know i and i know our friend uh, shag says about finding your joy but i think that there is a companion to finding your joy which is stop hitting yourself yeah <laughs> that if something doesn't make you happy stop you know if you're reading a comic book and it's just it's been bad for years why are you spending money that you could be spending money in a way that makes you happy yeah or taking that further why are you doing a podcast about it if you don't like it exactly i just the the, the thing that i've kind of learned over the years from podcasting is occasionally i would do you know, there's that kind of style of, of podcasting nerd media where it's just getting angry and if, if sometimes performatively in character angry at a piece of media like it kicked your dog or something. And there's something when you really feel it, like we've we've covered movies on our Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast. And I think there's only one of those movies that I genuinely hated, which was Sabotage, which I think is just an awful, repugnant, hateful movie. And it was a very cathartic experience doing that episode. It was us and Joe Preddy, and we just, oh, we just let everything out. But after that experience of, of getting that emotional release, I felt exhausted. And when I compare that to doing the episode we did on Total Recall, which was the same kind of, of enthusiasm and um, the same kind of emotional release, but it was a positive one, I felt invigorated after that episode. Um, after sabotage, I wanted to crawl onto the floor and just fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know how some people can maintain that because I really can't. I, I want to enjoy the things that I'm spending this much time doing prep for. If I'm going to do book reports voluntarily without getting paid, um, and then recording them, then I want to actually enjoy what I do. And I want to, the prep work should be fun too. I mean, sometimes, you know, it's like, it's fun to explore a thing. Like we did an episode on Fight Club and that episode is just basically me having a long conversation with my 20 year old self and how much I'm a different person from him. Um, but I couldn't do that every month. Certainly that would be exhausting. Hmm. So I don't know. And the older I get, the less tolerance I have for that. And I think, you know, when you think, 
I was scared of cancer. I was scared that I might die because my testicle had a weird growth on it. And that if I hadn't acted on it and if my sense of shame had been such that I didn't check it, didn't acknowledge that there was a problem and wasn't able to get over my sense of embarrassment and go to a doctor, that would have eventually killed me. Mm. And I went through that and I'm certainly not going to be able to get as angry about a really bad movie or a bad comic book. Even, you know, even the stuff that's really bad, like, you know, your, oh, hey, John Byrne took over your favorite book, you know? <laughs> I can't get that angry about it anymore. Even yeah. though John, oh, I just read some of the John Byrne Amazing Spider-Man stuff and he's trying to retcon stuff into the, the origin and I'm like, what there was an explosion during the spider but what are you talking about why do you have to change everything <laughs> um but again that's about as worked up as i can get because it's like my ball tried to kill me <laughs> i'm not that worked up about you you know finagling dr otto octavius into spider-man's origin because i know it got retconned later and it always yeah. will yeah. well that sounds like a natural ending point for this chat so um yeah Thank you very much, Mike, for being uh, open and honest and uh, vulnerable in this chat. Um, yeah, I really appreciate... I mean, that you put out in the world that you had testicular cancer and you told people on your podcast and you wanted to talk about it with me. That's uh, a lot. Sure. Yeah. Uh, people who don't know where to find Mike's podcast, they're all on Radio versus the Martians, um, which is a podcast that's better than mine, I believe. Oh. Absolutely. No, your podcast is great. <laughs> well, you guys are so articulate and, uh, you know, you think through what you say, which I often don't. So I really appreciate that. Uh, so where else do you want people to find you in on the electronic world? Well, Radio vs. the Martians is probably the best place to look. Radio vs. the Martians.com. We have, I would almost call it a side project, but it's not a side project. It's just an equal project we have uh, called Podcasta La Vista Baby which is a podcast about the films of Arnold Schwarzenegger. So uh, these are all projects between myself and Casey Doran, who is my podcasting tag team partner. You can find them on RadioVersusTheMartians.com, PodcastAlaVistaBaby.com, and all the regular podcasty places like you know iTunes and uh, Stitcher and so-and-so. When you came up with the name Podcast La Vista, did you guys jump in the air and high-five? I was very happy about that, and I'm really glad... I, I will occasionally come up with a pun I'm proud of, but I was really, I was inordinately proud of that pun, and I fear that I don't have another one in me quite that good again. Yeah, well, no, it's one of the best names of a podcast ever, and the podcast actually lives up to the name by being one of the best podcasts ever. So. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> All right, Mike, uh, thanks so much for this, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about again when we get a different type of cancer together. All right. I'm, I'm hoping for brain cancer this time. Oh, I'll go for lungs. I think. <laughs> for lungs? Well, you know, there's a quick way to do that. You just have to live a little <laughs> bit like John Constantine, and that will happen. Yeah. I just have to live near a power plant. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thank you. Thank you.